Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. Uh, we're coming to you uh, from the Coming Home Network International studio in Central Ohio, but we're coming to you at the at the benefit of EWTN Radio, and uh, I'm glad you're listening to EWTN. I hope you enjoy all the EWTN's programming. This particular program is uh, a time for us to reflect on significant scriptures that have helped our guests grow closer to Jesus Christ and are drawn to the church. And our guest for today is Mike Allen. He, uh, I'm going to read his bio in just a moment. He is uh, coming to us by phone from Lexington, the Lexington area of Kentucky. And, uh, but He's chosen a verse from John chapter 19 for us to look at today. And again, we'll look at that in a moment. These scriptures that I've asked my guests to choose are usually verses that, what we call verses they never saw, or some verse that awakened them to the fullness of the teaching of the church. And uh, he'll be talking about that in just a moment. Mike is the director of Family Life Ministries for the Catholic Diocese of Lexington, a position he has held since 2005. He also teaches a scripture class at Lexington Catholic High School and hosts a live daily local radio show on Real Life Radio, and that's neat uh, that he does, does that. So he's, um, I'm bringing on a professional to join me today. Uh, before becoming Catholic in August of 2005, Mike was a United Methodist pastor for over 10 years, a native of Lexington, Kentucky, and a graduate of University of Kentucky. He also has a Master of Divinity and Doctor of Ministry degrees from Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. And for those of you that come from Methodist background, uh, usually when you hear the word Asbury, you know that, that Mike comes from the more conservative uh, side of Methodism. We'll talk about that in a moment when Mike joins us, which is a good thing. And Mike and his wife, uh, Angie, have been married for 21 years and have seven children ages 4 to 17. Mike has chosen... For his verse, John 19, verse 31 through 36. Before we read it, let me just remind you of the deepinscripture.com website so you can follow along with the program. All the archive programs are there. But if you'd like to give us a call or contact us by email, you can do that at 800-664-5110. You can also call the regular Coming Home Network number 740 or you can send me an email at marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, at deepinscripture.com. Now here's the verse that, that uh, Mike chose for us to discuss today. John 19, 31 through 36. Since it was the day of preparation in order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. In the 
next time on The Journey Home. Following his interview with St. Paul, Marcus now welcomes Blessed Dominic Barbary to the show. Learn more about this Blessed of God and his role in the conversion of John Henry Cardinal Newman. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Gerdeis' book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow Him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Gerdeis' book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Today our guest is Mike Allen. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Marcus. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. I joked a little bit earlier about having a professional on with me. I didn't realize you did a regular radio program. I just started in January. I've been learning on the job, as they say. <laughs> well, join the club, because that's how I did, too. <laughs> but it's it's great to know that the Lord is using your gifts in that way, um, and that's great. Um, and it's also neat to see that that you've come on board into the Catholic Church, and there you are, the Director of Family Life Ministries for the diocese. Um, and I that's a, that's a very important ministry today. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Um, John Paul II, Pope John Paul, the venerable John Paul II, yep, yep, said yep. Uh, the, the future of humanity passes by way of the family. So uh, we take that very seriously in the work we do here. Oh, it's, it's, it's really important. Um, I know a fair number of men and women who became Catholic because of the Church's stand on pro-life issues, um, sometimes they were a little disappointed once they came in to see, sadly, the number of Catholics that are not living according to the teachings of the Church, but yet it was often the teachings of the Church that convinced them of the authority of the Church. Um, so it's great having men like you, you know, fighting the battles there at the diocesan level. Thank you very much. Uh, it's interesting because I, uh, you know, even way before I even uh, thought anything about becoming Catholic or even looked into the Catholic faith, I was fairly ignorant of Catholicism, but I did have sort of a distant uh, admiration, let's say, for the Catholic Church because of its very strong pro-life and uh, pro-family views. I was a Presbyterian uh, pastor in the big Presbyterian Church in America, and I was of the smaller percentage of that church's pro-life folk. Uh, I think and, it's very similar to the United Methodist Church, uh, which I was a part. That's what I was going to wonder. You know, I, I felt like I was fighting an uphill battle just against my own denomination. Absolutely. And so it's uh, coming into the church is good to see that, that in, at least as Catholics, we know we if we are defend life, we are in line with the church, with our leaders in the church. Now we just have to help the people in the pew and and maybe others that serve the church come in line with the church. So thank you for your work, Mike. 
No, I appreciate it. Thanks for the affirmation. Now, you chose John 19, 31 through 36, and I love the verse, and there's a lot of neat things in there, but I will say it's not the first one that comes to mind for a lot of people when they think about the verses they never saw. But maybe before we dig into it, maybe in a more general sense, you know, what was there about this text? When, when did it awaken you? When did it become important to you in your own journey? Well, it, yeah, it's, it's an interesting um, story in a way, because um, in 2003, which uh, I, was, I was ordained as a United Methodist pastor in 1994 and then began to pastor this one particular church in 1998, and, I, and it was about the same time that I just sort of had an intellectual curiosity about Catholicism. I was prompted by um, uh, a couple of novels I read by Graham Greene, who was a yep. British novelist. And, uh-huh. Catholicism was sort of a haunting presence in all of his novels, even though from what I understand he was sort of a tortured Catholic. But, mm-hmm. and, and he would, of course, you know, describe things like the liturgy, the Eucharist, a lot of things, uh, or the Mass in his books. So I'd been on this journey for about five years of just little by little learning, you know, in a, in a sort of detached sort of intellectual journey, but learning little things here and there about Catholicism, learning that what the Catholic Church, uh, what I perceived that the Catholic Church taught wasn't always really what the Catholic Church taught, or I began to see um, the reasons behind certain Catholic teachings and all these sort of things, and I was kind of on that part of the uh, journey that G.K. Chesterton describes as uh, beginning by being fair to the Church, yes, <laughs> and then becoming fond of the Church, you know. Um, but I was not yet at a place really where all these sort of you know, fragmented um, aha moments were coming together. You know, I was mm-hmm. just kind of learning little things as they went, and so I wasn't yet at the point where I could really articulate uh, or even, you know, put into a, any sort of coherent framework the idea that that this had moved beyond an intellectual sort of curiosity to really now desiring to become Catholic. And this would have been in August, I think, of 2003, and I, and I was... Uh, typically in our in the Methodist Church, we had communion the first Sunday of the month mm-hmm. in our particular local church where I was pastor, and so I was I was working on it. And sometimes I followed the lectionary, and sometimes I didn't. I just pick a passage of my own, and and I decided I was going to preach a sermon uh, on John chapter six. <laughs> 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 so. So I start reading it, and I'm reading toward the end of John chapter 6. You know, John, I think, begins in about uh, 52, where Jesus begins saying, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. You know the passage yep. I'm talking about. Yep, yep. And, um, you know, it's, it's so interesting. The way the Holy Spirit works, of course, sometimes we only see in hindsight. Mm-hmm what we weren't able to see as we were going through it, right? So I was, I was working on this sermon, and I, and I came up with this idea of, of the, the title of the sermon was called The Untamed Meal. I'm even sitting here right now looking at the notes from this sermon that I wrote. And the basic premise was, you know, rooted in this John chapter 6, was this idea that we have um, so sanitized communion, at least in our portion of Protestantism, you know, with, where we would have a little, maybe a little square piece of bread and a little tiny little plastic cup of grape juice, that we had so sanitized this meal and uh, really yeah. 
become, in a, in a sense, sort of uh, um, deaf to the radical nature of Jesus' words. And in fact, it's it's just so funny to look back. <laughs> I actually have in my notes that I opened my sermon by saying this: uh, in in a little while, I'm going to invite you up here to eat a hunk of flesh and drink a glass of blood. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, here I am skating on the edge of transubstantiation, you know, without right. even knowing it. But so, in my work of uh, in studying the passage, and I always. You know, it wasn't always perfect at giving that at an adequate time, but in this particular case, really spent a lot of time in John 6, and then began to sort of look, uh, sort of ripple out toward the, the larger context of the passage, until really I wanted to look at it within the context of the entire Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. And um, and something sort of struck me funny as I considered the Gospel of John, I thought, you know, what is it about the Gospel of John that sets it apart from the other three Gospels? There's no account of the institution of the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper. <laughs> and, and, it, and, and I thought that was very odd, you know. Of course, I read different things about that. But what began to occur to me as I began to read and, and think about the Gospel of John and look at various sources was that even though there's no Last Supper uh, institution narrative, in John's Gospel, there's a sense in which the entire Gospel itself is Eucharistic, beginning with you know, John the Baptist's proclamation there, mm-hmm. in John chapter 1, where he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And uh, I, I, you know, doing some various word searches and all that sort of thing, I, I, I noticed that, um, that the, the the term the Passover was, was mentioned in John's Gospel more than any other Gospel. <laughs> so that was very interesting. You know, so all this stuff is sort of happening in me as I'm studying. And um, somehow, I don't even remember how, of course, I end up in this passage in John chapter 19 that we're talking about today. <laughs> where Jesus is on the cross, and of course the situation is they want to hasten death because of the impro- approaching uh, feast day, that the Passover, the Sabbath. They don't want these three persons left on the cross. And so to hasten their death, they're going to break their legs so that they can't be able to, I guess, to push up to be able to breathe. Because uh, from what I understand, asphyxiation was typically the cause of death for those who were crucified. Mm-hmm. And so they broke the first gentleman's legs, or the first uh, criminal's legs. They broke the second one's. And then they came to Jesus and discovered that he was already dead, which, of course, tells you a little bit probably about the intensity of the scourging and the suffering yeah. that he had endured up to that point. So they get to Jesus, they discover that he's dead, and they don't break his legs. And then there's that interesting verse there at the end of that passage. This happened so that the Scripture passage might be fulfilled. Not a bone of it will be broken. Now, I'm sure I'd heard this before, mm-hmm. but maybe I'd somehow forgotten about it, and I began to you know, look at the little uh, notations at the bottom of my Bible associated with that verse, and it directed me, of course, back to the book of Exodus, chapter 12 and verse 46, where the instructions are given regarding the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. 
the lamb who, you know, there mm-hmm. with the, uh, as the tenth plague, the death of the, the firstborn, the angel of death who comes to strike the firstborn down. God gives these very detailed instructions about this very first Passover in which they were to take the lamb, they were to sacrifice this lamb without blemish, and they were to take the blood of the lamb, the, the Israelites, and were to put it around their door frames, sprinkle that blood, so that the angel of death would pass over. But I also noticed, and again, I'm sure I'd heard this before perhaps, but <laughs> for whatever reason it didn't strike me like it did then. I realized that um, in the instructions there in, in Exodus 12:46, it begins to, to explain, in, in, again in detail, how the lamb is to be killed. And it explains that there's not uh, that that the lamb's bones should not be broken in the way the lamb is killed. Or I guess you could look at it maybe it was a lamb whose leg or, or who didn't have any broken bones, mm-hmm. unblemished. And that began to to really kind of swirl around in my mind. You know, I began to think about this and and um, associated with those words of John the Baptist, "This is the Lamb of God." John's great emphasis on Passover. Mm-hmm. Those words in John chapter six, with those very uh, just alarming words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and it, it occurred to me in a, in a way that it never had before that the Passover lamb was not only to be sacrificed, but the little Passover lamb was also to be eaten. In fact, for the audience's sake, let me read that verse from Exodus in full to get the full context. Exodus twelve forty six reads, In one house shall it be eaten. You shall not carry forth any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break a bone of it. And then, and then all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. I mean, that's interesting when you think about the congregation of Israel is not just that congregation but extends to us today. Mm-hmm. They must keep this feast. Yeah. And so, you know, as I was writing the the, uh, the sermon and I was thinking about this, you know, I realized that connection between that passage there in John 19, Jesus' sacrifice, uh, where he's, he's, he's died, he said it is finished, and he's given up his spirit there on the cross. And... Uh, and that fulfillment of that prophecy, and, and it was almost like, you know, for the first time I could see that, really that holistic theme all across John's Gospel, that even though there's no Eucharistic institution narrative, that John very much wanted his Gospel to be understood in light of the Passover, and Jesus very much as the Lamb, who was not only to be sacrificed, of course, uh, in, in, a, in atoning for sin, but also to be consumed, just as the Passover lamb was. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's funny because, again, looking back over the notes of this sermon that I preached, it's funny because <laughs> after I preached the sermon, I had several people come up and say, the <laughs> Methodist Christians who are, who are unaw- as unaware as I am, right, of, yeah. of, the, uh, of what the Holy Spirit's doing here, of course, it's that instinctive sort of, um, that internal, um, the, the thing in which something rings true, you know. It's just something that 
you haven't sorted it through your denominational grid or whatever it may be. You just hear it, and, and yes, it sounds true. I had several people come and say, you know, that's the... I'd never thought about the Eucharist like that, or that was the, uh, the the most powerful sermon on the Eucharist I've ever heard, or I mean, our communion that I've ever heard. They didn't really use the word Eucharist. They said communion that I've ever heard, and uh, it was interesting. And even at this point, I, I'm still largely unaware that... Uh, that this is something within me that is sort of sealing the deal in terms of my journey toward the Catholic Church. But I did mention in the sermon uh, the reality that, you know, why were the early Christians often um, accused of being cannibals? Which, you know, from what yep. I understand, that was, that was one of the uh, things that St. Justin mm-hmm. was writing to address, um, was this idea that because when the early Christians would gather together, they would, uh, um, you know, when it came time for the liturgy of the Eucharist, they would dismiss the uh, the uh, catechumens, those who weren't yet baptized. And so there were these rumblings about them, these accusations that they were participating in these very strange mm-hmm. rituals, mm-hmm. which included cannibalism. And I even asked the question, I have it here in my notes, do our Catholic friends have it right? <laughs> <laughs> but then in the next sentence I like backed off of that you know a little bit um, when you wrote that were you was the needle of the gauge in your journey leaning at all towards the Catholic Church or were you still just inquiring oh I was still inquiring I okay. was not at the point in fact that you know I, I um, that time in my life I was probably a little more diligent than I am now about uh, I kept a personal journal <laughs> And uh, as I look back over some of those journals, the first time that I ever noticed, that I ever see recorded the possibility of becoming Catholic was about six months after that, Uh, in February of 2004. So this was still six months before that, you know. So at this point, it hasn't even crossed in my wildest imagination that, uh, that something may actually come of this sort of intellectual curiosity about the Catholic faith. It was just um, just another sort of little aha moment along that journey. Yeah, it, it, and you're, the, vo- the verse you've chosen it is a great example of, uh, of what this program is about, the verses we never saw, because this particular verse, as I, I'm trying to think back myself, uh, Mike, when I was a pastor and, and preached on this passage, uh, I'm sure I preached on it around Easter. I need to go back in my files and get out one of my old... You've really <laughs> made me curious. What did I do with this passage? But I'm almost positive that all the only level that I saw in this passage, the point of it, was that the not breaking of the legs was a fulfillment of Scripture. Right. It was just surely the fulfillment of prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. That's all that I saw. Uh and I'm wondering what you think about the earliest Christians who would have heard, let's say, the first Christians to read this passage in the gospel. Not necessarily the people sitting there with John, but which would have been later in the first century, let's assume, but you know, those that heard it from John. I'm thinking they saw it quicker than we did because many of them would have been much closer to the Passover celebration as former Jews than we are, or we were, because we were former Methodists or Presbyterians. In case the background had been 
long since wiped away to see the connections. I think there's no question about that. And, you know, it, it's interesting that you know, John's Gospel is the only one of the four Gospels that mentions this very detail, which is, which is yep. interesting, because it's, as we've already said, it's the one Gospel that does not contain a Eucharistic institution narrative. But it does include this detail, and it's also the only gospel to refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Yep. And uh, as good Jews, as you said, I mean, or at least you know, uh, Jewish Christians, mm-hmm. they knew what lambs were for. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, you know, they, they, their minds would have made a beeline, I'm sure, directly to the uh, the Passover sacrifice. Yeah, it's very possible that those earliest Christians who came from a Jewish background, this was all second nature. They were very, very well aware of all those Eucharistic connections all the way through, which really answers the question of why didn't John do the the details of the Last Supper? It was so familiar to them all. You know, he had a different goal in mind. He, he was putting down on paper, or at least to an amanuensis, was putting down... Th- those connections that, in your case, when I mean, you saw it, I didn't even see the connection of this before, before I became Catholic. It took a long time for me to make the connections. Uh, in fact, uh, we're going to get ready to take a break in a moment, but verse 35, I think, uh, is very significant in that if we aren't seeing the point of the passage, we really don't know why the person who recorded this gospel put verse 35 in here. Because verse 35, let me read it again for the audience, says, it breaks away. It's almost if you can imagine there being a play in front of you um, of what's going on, a description of this, and then it's as if the, the, the narrator breaks from the play and turns to you and looks right in the face and says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you also may believe. It's a very, you know, think about that. He broke in to say this. And what does it say to you, Mike, that, that the author, we're assuming John is behind it, but at least the amanuensis, his secretary, added this, right? And, you know, why did he see it so important? Yeah, it's like he's shouting at us, don't miss this. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. I thought that when I look back, I feel foolish, as if the only thing, the, the importance of this is the fulfillment of Scripture. Saying, don't miss that. You know, see the fulfillment of Scripture. Well, that's all through, all four Gospels, Right. Fulfillment of Scripture, fulfillment, it's all the time. Matthew, all over the place, he did this fulfill Scripture. So that's not the new issue. The mere fulfillment of a prophecy is not the, the only point going on here. But the point that is going on here is so important that the secretary wants to add that this witness is saying this is true and why that you might believe. And let's take a break. We come back. I want to make sure we make sure audience sees all the connections there. But there's even another deeper level, which has to do with the blood and the water, which I never saw before. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Mike Allen, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. 
EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Next time on Life on the Rock, how do you go about raising young girls to become great women of faith? Find out when Teresa Tamio joins Doug and Father Mark to talk about all things girl. That's on the next Life on the Rock, only on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Mike Allen, and we're looking at John chapter 19, verses 31 through 36. Before we get back into the passage, though, just a couple other little announcements. Tomorrow on EWTN Radio, you want to tune in to Catholic Answers Live with Patrick Coffin. It's a two-hour question and answer open forum with Catholic apologist Jimmy Aiken for the first hour. He's the president of Ignatius Press, oh, and also president of Ignatius Press Mark Brumley will join him for the second hour. So be sure to tune in tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And then I also want to remind you, let's see, I've got another announcement. Oh, yeah, a really neat bit of news. And uh, I always want to announce when we see uh, EWTN's broadcast expanding, I want to welcome the newest member of the EWTN radio family, our friends at CRC. I, Catholic Radio for Central Illinois, are now on the air in Peoria, Illinois, at 94.3 FM WPMJ, which stands for With Prayer, Meet Jesus, reaches over 354,000 people in Central Illinois. That's exciting. So we welcome them to the to the EWTN radio family. All right, Mike, at the one level, the, the, the secretary who was recording what John was saying. That's the way I interpret it. At least that's my interpretation of John. Um, because in verse 35, he's talking about John. So it's not John writing that, but the person about John. Saying that John's testimony, he bore witness, his testimony's true, and he knows that he tells the truth, all that's important. And he's doing this that you might believe. At the one level, I only saw this as that he is saying that he saw the legs broken, so they fulfilled Scripture. But there's a deeper level, and you've been talking about that. I want to make sure audience hears that this is really a significant reason for the secretary to, to put this into the story. And that's the level of the connection with the Passover. Well, and you know, you mentioned earlier, or you just said a minute ago, that it's, it's more than the what you thought was just the fulfilling of Scripture. Yeah. And I think part of it is is coming to understand the very meaning of the word fulfill in the Catholic understanding, because you know I think this is where you really the great richness and beauty of typology, mm-hmm. which is so intrinsic to really a Catholic way of reading the Scripture, and really I think very much um, faithful to the way many of the early Church fathers read the scripture this idea that you know when jesus says it, it, it's or, you know it's that uh, verse there in matthew five seventeen. i don't think that i've come to destroy the law and the prophets i've come to fulfill mm-hmm. and 
then that whole thing that St. Augustine says, you know, that, about the two testaments, that the, uh, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. And uh, so, you know, when we talk about fulfilling prophecy, it's not just a, um, maybe the way we thought about it before, possibly, uh, when we weren't really looking through those Catholic lenses, as just, well, they said it was going to do this, and it did this, so check that off. Yeah. <laughs> but rather, yeah. you know, when we say fulfill, what we mean is it, the, the true and full meaning um, of the previous event, the type is now in the reality uh, brought to its deepest truth, <laughs> you know, and I think that's um, that's a whole different way I think, and then sort of a Catholic way of reading Scripture. Um, and I, I've got to add that that is for the audience an essential way of seeing it. It's a huge difference, and it comes, as you said, Mike, from the Sermon on the Mount, and. In that, you see why Jesus is saying that not a dot or a tittle of the law is going to be set aside. The law is fulfilled. So it doesn't mean that the Old Testament law has been checked off, as you said, and and we can cast it aside. No, it's fulfilled, but it continues in a more deeper way. That's right. I mean, that's the whole problem with, I think it was Marcion who was the the heretic from the early centuries of the Church, one of the really earliest mm-hmm. major heretics. That was his argument, was that, um, you know, the God of the Old Testament was in many ways replaced by, uh, by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament, really, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, whatever you want to call them, you know, are no longer relevant. And the Catholic Church, of course, that as a heresy and saw again that vital connection that we really can't fully understand the Old Testament without the new and we can't fully understand the new without the old and of course you pointed out the the uh, the need for us to being connected with history so we don't repeat the same problem over and over and over again because I know at least in my Protestant background a lot of us basically assume that all the Old Testament law and all those regulations were just now fulfilled, check them off, move on. And you you see every day a new Protestant church starting up often with their only commitment being, you know, it's lived by the Spirit. Uh, And often either too legalistic or too libertine without recognizing that Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament law is a continuation as is his fulfillment of the Old Testament people of God which is the church, the continuity. It hasn't been ended, and then now every individual church can start up its own. No, there's a continuity with the old that's fulfilled, brought forth in a more full way in Jesus, which is the church. Absolutely. And so, therefore, regarding the topic that we've been discussing, we can't really understand the Eucharist if we don't understand the Passover. We really can't understand the Passover yeah. if we don't understand the Eucharist. And I, and I will say that, you know, Scott Hahn, who, of course, has written so prolifically in so many different areas, right. his work on this in his, in his book, The Lamb's Supper, uh, is, is, I think, one of the greatest books of the last, you know, 10 or 20 years, I mean, in, in really helping us understand the Eucharist and 
course, I came to read that a little bit later in my journey, mm-hmm. but to read, you know, his uh, work on the book of Revelation and how that really can't be understood apart from the liturgy. And it's, uh, I remember when he and I were in seminary together and we sat through the exact same class that became the kind of kernel that awakened him to the meaning of the covenant and, and the whole Testament picture of that. I mean, he and I sat in the same lectures and I didn't see it at all. He saw it. And I think it was the, the background of seeing the whole continuity of the covenantal structure of the Old Testament, the continuity of covenants, the continuity of the family of God, the fatherhood of God, all of that continuity, the, t- the typological fulfillment that I think helped him see as just you've pointed out, this Eucharistic connection in Revelations, that the rest of us saw the data, but we didn't see it tied together because he was being led by grace to see the fulfillment of that. Uh, And even as you're saying this, Mike, that end of verse 36, not a bone of him shall be broken. I thought that John was making a point here of the the fulfillment of a scripture, but it never even crossed my mind to go back in the Old Testament to look at that. Because after a while, you read so many of these verses in the New Testament say he fulfilled Scripture, fulfilled Scripture, so you don't even take, take the time to look it up anymore. Sure. But what's interesting about this passage is it's not a prophecy where there's an Old Testament reference to a person that's being fulfilled in a person, right? This is Old Testament prophecy about a lamb mm-hmm. being fulfilled in a person. That's significant just that, isn't it? Oh yes, and 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 I have to say, I, you know, interestingly or ironically enough, um, my desire when I was a Methodist pastor to to view the Scripture as a whole, I actually give credit to an older gentleman who's uh, in the mid '80s, Dr. Dennis Kenlaw, who was uh, president of Asbury College, and he's just a great yeah. biblical scholar. And, and and I tell him sometimes, you know, uh, when I have the opportunity to see him. Um, sort of with a chuckle, you know. That <laughs> I, it, it's your fault that I'm Catholic. <laughs> I say, you know, you're the one who taught me about really. I guess we could call it canonical criticism or whatever. The idea that you understand the Scripture uh, w- within the the entire canon. Mm-hmm. You, know, you really can't just pull out a book here and a verse here. You really have to see the whole thing. And I think it was in a sense, being awakened to that within the Scripture that opened my mind to the reality of that about all the truths of the faith. And that's one of the things that I love and was really drawn to about the Catholic faith was, uh, you know, the time came six months or so after I preached this original sermon on John 6 that I really saw what I call just the comprehensive beauty and integrity of the Catholic faith. I just saw how everything uh, fit together, uh, how truths confirmed truths, and it was just a spectacular thing. And I think this is just an example of that mm-hmm. in in this uh, this passage of uh, you know the, this connection with the Passover Lamb is this integrated nature of the faith that uh, just rings true. You know, and your reference to your good and faithful teacher um, reminds me in this connection of my own, of maybe the thing that nudged me towards the church was it's what your teacher is pointing out is it's just not only 
that the the scriptures, the New Testament, are infallible and inspired. It's not just that. It's that the canon itself is significant. That the books that are in the Bible, as, as well as the books that aren't the Bible, that there's a significant point there. Because if you're going to com- compare this passage in the light of the canon, you've got to make sure, okay, which books I'm comparing it to. Does that include the Gospel of Thomas? Does that include, uh, you know, Bell and the Dragon or some other Old Testament? What does it include? And that drove me to recognize the authority of the church to define the canon. And I'm wondering if you're a good and faithful teacher, if you've ever addressed that with him. I have not, but, uh, <laughs> but maybe I will. <laughs> it's been very interesting, uh, and I don't want to take us too far off tangent, but yeah. when, I, when I told him that I was... When, for the first time, you know, about uh, in sort of, I think, May of 2004, that I was thinking about becoming Catholic, of course, not knowing how he would react. <laughs> um, he, the first thing he told me was that the biggest influence on his theology had been Pope John Paul II. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. I just fell out of my chair right there in Applebee's. That's amazing. Because I respected him, too, when I was an evangelical Protestant. I saw him as a good, faithful, Jesus-loving Christian. There was no question there. I just felt sorry that he was weighted down with all that Catholic baggage. I didn't appreciate any of it. <laughs> but uh, one more layer, then, in this passage I want to make sure we get to, and I, I mentioned it a little earlier. Now, there's the level at which at least I only saw this as a merely a fulfillment of Scripture, and it was just my my obtuseness, not even mention. I didn't even see the next level was that the, the prophetic connection was between a lamb and a person. But the level that you mentioned, the Eucharistic, I didn't see that at all. But there's another. And I'm going to take a break now because we've got one more. And we get back, Mike, I'd like you to address the next level, which is um, maybe the most significant thing in verse 35 that he's pointing to. And that is that something came out of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And there's a significance to that. Let's look at that when we come back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Mike Allen. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio next. No. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 8th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year, our focus will be on the authenticity of the sacred scriptures as we ask, how firm is your foundation? Join us the weekend of October 22nd as we bring together another exciting list of guest speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. 
Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Mike Allen. And just a couple things. I want to remind you that next Wednesday, same time, same channel, our guest on Deep in Scripture is Deacon Michael Ross. Uh, That's next Wednesday at 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time on DWTN Radio. Uh, Please join us. I also want to remind you that if you go to deepinscripture.com website, there's a click. You can watch the program live on the Internet. You can get all the archive programs. But today, below Mike's bio, is a direct link to the Mike Allen Show. If you click on that, you'll go to his website, talk about his radio program. You can even listen live to his program, which is on tonight. Is that right? Tonight's at 5... Uh, 5 Eastern to 6 Eastern, yes, sir. All right, you can listen to that. If you're not in his area, you can listen to it on the website. And it looks like he's got all the archived programs are there. So uh, you can click to that on the Deep in Scripture website. All right, Michael, with the time we've got left, there's another layer of this verse that's it's really significant. Uh, talk about that, if you would. You're talking about where he was pierced and yeah. outflowed blood and water? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get that when I was uh, a Protestant minister. No, I didn't either. I mean, I just would have read it just as face value that, well, it just simply means that um, this this proves that he died, or I, maybe I would have read something about the his heart being pierced and mm-hmm. uh, uh, whatever the, the sack is around the heart, and that's why the blood... I mean, it would have been a purely yep. physiological sort of uh, of an explanation. And I have to say on this one, you know, it wasn't really until I became Catholic that I, that I read a couple of different things about this. One, of course, was this idea from the uh, from many some of the early church fathers that this blood and water in, in were were um, represented uh, the, the the two sacraments of the mm-hmm. Eucharist and baptism, and so that this you know oftentimes I think as a as a Protestant I always in my mind viewed Pentecost as the birthday of the Church. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that there were, uh, among the early Christians, this is where the Church was born, was at this piercing of his side. And and part of uh, coming to understand that, too, and this is where John connects with the Old Testament uh, on, a, on, on another level as well, and certainly when you see within John's Gospel, you, you can't help but notice these allusions to the book of Genesis at the very beginning, you know, mm-hmm. where both both God, John's Gospel and the book of Genesis start in the beginning. And, um, you know, I've read this, and, and I don't know if it was Scott Hahn or, or where that I was, you know, first read about this, this idea that just as, in this passage, that just as with the, the original creation and the original couple made male and female in the image of God, that just as the woman, Eve, was brought forth from the side of Adam, so here we have Christ's bride, the Church, being brought forth from his side. Christ, who is the new Adam. St. Paul refers to him as the new Adam, as well as many of the early Church fathers. And the Church, as his bride, which, if you think about that connection with the book of uh, Apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation, in which this vision of uh, this heavenly vision is that of a, uh, a heavenly uh, marriage, the marriage between Christ and his bride. And uh, 
you know, that, that's really a, a compelling, beautiful image, I think, that, um, that certainly I had never seen. Yeah. As I said, you know, I didn't really see that until I became Catholic. But now I look at this passage entirely at a, at a whole different level than I ever did before. Especially when you uh, we have to fill in the blanks a little bit historically, because it's accepted almost universally by biblical scholars, whether they're Catholic or or non-Catholic, that probably the Gospel of John was the later Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already right. there. That this is a more theological, reflective Gospel. Uh, almost all the stories are signs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see John speaking fluent. Uh, uh, the, it flows from the words of Jesus into a theological explanation often, like in John three sixteen. 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who's speaking there, Jesus or John? You know, and there's that flow. It's hard to see. And in this passage, which is really neat, uh, often John has these two things paired, blood and water. John 3 Unless you're born, you're not born again unless you're born with uh, water in the spirit. Uh, John 4, he who worships God worships in spirit and truth. There's the pairing of these things. And again, when you look back from John's perspective where we already have a fairly developed church, seeing it through the eyes of the sacramental life, we're seeing baptism, we're seeing preaching and liturgy, we're seeing the Eucharist, all these things are there. It represented by John in the story of Christ. I certainly didn't see before. <laughs> well, and, and certainly, too, you know, in, in John's Gospel, where is Jesus' first sign? It's at a wedding. Yes. Right? So, um, and, the, and the Church has always viewed that sign, as it does, of course, everything else. But the fact that it was there at Cana, his first sign there in John's Gospel, is more than just happenstance. There's something profound going on, and uh, even the fact that that uh, Mary is there, who we can really call the new Eve in many ways, um, and, and the, even the fact that, and, and unfortunately some translations miss this, even the fact that Jesus refers to his mother there as woman. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like he's being uh, you know, abrupt and rude. Yeah, way. in fact there are some translations that try to sort of address that and have, he calls her madam. <laughs> they really miss that. Those Genesis, um, yeah. you know, overtones there, that uh, you know this this fall that so wounded the original man and the original woman, and of course all of their descendants, now being restored or made right through Christ's redemptive work, and he also calls her woman from the cross, um, in which he entrusts her. Just but this is just before this passage. And when he trusts her over to the care of the beloved disciple, which he says, woman, behold your son, and uh, <laughs> son, behold your mother. So, you know, there, there's all this um, this going on, and, uh, you know, these, these strong, I think, overtones of Genesis all throughout John's Gospel are, are certainly um, evident here in the piercing of, of the sign, I think. Well, uh, and... It, it, it almost sounds like John wants us to begin there because how does he begin his gospel? In the beginning was the Word. Right. I mean, the obvious parallel to Genesis 1-1 is there. It's as if he is saying that if you want to understand 
was here, you've got to see the types back in the Old Testament to see what I'm saying makes sense. You know, I'm wondering in just a couple seconds to go, uh, what would what would you say it was in your own life, or what you might recommend to the audience? What what would help them see the deeper understanding that's there in Scripture? You know what I mean? I mean, what what was it that helped you see? Besides reading a, a book by Scott Hahn or something, uh, you mean that it helped me understand yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, all, a good bit of it, as I told you, was um, was through a person. It was through this mentor of mine, Doctor Dennis Kinlaw, who. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that struck me about him was that that he had a um, here he was in his in his mid eighties or you know still is I guess in his late eighties now. Oftentimes we have this idea that a mature reading of the scripture, um, you know, we kind of hear this in this sort of almost cynical or skeptical mindset means to have a diminished view of scripture. You know, well if we understand biblical criticism and so forth and so on, right? <laughs> The thing that was so compelling about uh, Dr. Kinlaw is, is that he had this, that the more he knew of the scriptures, the more uh, he was in awe and in reverence of the scriptures. Almost like I was compared to someone who's restoring an old classical painting, you know, they, that's, that's accumulated all these, you know, layers of dust and filth, and yep. the, the more that it, it, the more that uh, you wipe away the soot, the more rich the beauty and the grandeur shines forth. And so, I th- you know, when, when I think about the scriptures, I think, um, because right now no, no single book is coming to mind, but yeah. what I think is imperative is, is the attitude yeah. that we bring to the scriptures. And I might just add to that, because the last thing I'd want to be is critical at all of your good, faithful teacher, because I, I could add to that list of those that I had in seminary. Uh, but it also demonstrates that we want to read scripture for the rest of our life, but for me, looking at it in the context of the early church, the early church fathers really helped me see the other levels that I was missing. And you mentioned that yourself. Well, there's an interesting, yep. there, there was an article Robert Louis Wilkin wrote in yes. the March issue of First Things, in which he talks about the neglect of allegory. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he says, and I'll give you this little quote, he said, the abandonment of allegory was a revolt against the church's tradition, including the tradition that is found in the New Testament itself. Hey, Mike, thanks for joining us on the program. Everybody, you see you next week. All right, thank you, Mark. Okay, God bless.